this is a big Sunday, right? We have our new lead pastor, Isaiah Lewis, who will come up here in a moment. Uh, we are very excited, and we are very glad that you've joined us for this big day. So at the end of our service, we are going to install Isaiah as well. That is just going to be such a great occasion, so you can look forward to that. Uh, Isaiah and Liz arrived just about two weeks ago, and they have moved into their house. Uh, it's not yet free of boxes, but it will be, right? <laughs> so uh, if you would, let's welcome Isaiah with us this morning. Isaiah. Well, thank you all. It is, uh, it's truly a joy for us to be here with you guys. Um, we've heard in a couple different contexts uh, that we are an answer to prayer uh, for you all. I guess I want to communicate on our behalf to you all that you all are an answer to our prayers. Um, God has answered our prayers by bringing us here, so we're so thankful for you guys. We're thankful to get to know you better. Um, this is the beginning of a journey. Uh, and it is a journey. It will take some time for us to get to know you and you to get to know us, but that's part of the joy of this whole process. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible right now and turn to Colossians, or yeah, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. As we consider beginning our life together, uh, the book of Colossians is what the Lord has laid on my heart for us to begin to go through uh, we're going to spend time uh, over the next several months through this wonderful book that's going to bring us back over and over and over again to the gospel that we have proclaimed this morning through the liturgy and that we've sung together and that we need to be reminded of each and every day, each and every hour of our lives as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm going to uh, begin right off the bat here by reading the first couple verses of Colossians and then we'll dive right in here. So Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Paul is sitting down to write an epistle. He's sitting in a prison in Ephesus. Paul did not start the church at Colossae. It was probably started by Epaphras, one of Paul's companions in the gospel. But as Paul is in prison, he hears of some concerns that the Colossian church is facing within the city of Colossae, so he sits down and he begins to write to them. He wrote this perhaps 20 to 25 years after Jesus Christ died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, a mere 20 or 25 years prior to this. And there's some disagreement about the setting into which Paul is writing, but there are some things we can pick up very clearly from the context of Colossians that I think will be helpful as we begin to draw comparisons and, and draw lines between our current setting and that in which the Colossian believers we're living. So several realities are, are clear. First of all, Paul's readers are in some danger of being bound back up in religious tradition. 
they're in danger of falling prey to legalism. You can see this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Go ahead and turn there. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And later on in this chapter, verses 20 to 23, if Christ, or if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And then he lists those regulations that were being forced upon the Colossian believers. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to all things that perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. And he goes on from there. So Paul is writing into a context in which true believers, true followers of Christ, are in danger of falling back into the Jewish mindset of having to obey certain regulations to find favor with God. But the answer to such legalistic bents is not lawlessness. He's not going to encourage them, okay, reject all of those regulations and do whatever you want to do. No, he says later on in chapter 2, or earlier in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And in chapter 3, he's going to lay out many precepts and many implications of how the gospel transforms an individual from the inside out. So Paul wants to root his readers in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the face of two dangers, legalism on one hand and lawlessness on the other. And so he brings them back to the gospel. And the connection to our own day and age is not all that different, is it? We are in the middle of the Bible Belt in a nation that was founded on Judeo-Christian values. So there's been this cultural Christianity that for decades has had incredible sway within our culture. But that's diminishing. And that cultural Christianity looks or it takes many different forms. Sometimes it looks like individuals taking the power of guilt or expectations or the power of fear and trying to change people within a religious context by those motivations, as in many, unfortunately, fundamentalist churches. And this type of cultural Christianity usually just ignores the culture altogether creates its own subculture, and then rails against the culture within its own subculture. At other times, cultural Christianity looks to the type of power that the culture broadly is after, the type of power that seeks to transform people through personality or maybe through votes and lobbying. And it offers very little by way of transformative power for life and for relationships. And at other times, this cultural Christianity is nothing more than simply a hand raise or a head nod to some religiosity of life, the form of godliness without the power. 
So you add into that cultural Christianity mix of the Bible Belt, you add into that a de-Christianizing surrounding culture, and we are moving towards a post-Christian culture in America, and that's just where we're headed, and we need to be ready to live in that environment, and we ourselves need to be brought back to the same truths that Paul is bringing his readers back to, the gospel, and how it transforms us from the inside out, how it changes our motivations, how it changes our relationships, how it brings well-being and peace and wholeness. So while our setting is not identical to that of Paul's early readers, there are similarities enough that I think this would be a helpful book for us to dive into together as we begin our journey together. So let's get at three realities found within these first two verses that we've read. Three realities. We're going to get at them by asking three different questions. So here's the first question. Where is our authority? As individuals, as followers of Jesus, as a church, as Sojourn Community Church, where is our authority rooted? In our world of everything is relative, in our world of there is no absolute truth, talking about authority is never popular, unless there's an agenda to be accomplished by forcing people to submit to that authority. Even within the church, mentioning authority can get you blacklisted as spiritually abusive or coercive. It's assumed that if someone is talking about authority, they're doing so because they have some self-interest or they have some agenda or both. But what we as Sojourn Community Church are a part of is a movement that spans centuries that roots its identity and that buys wholesale the reality that there is absolute truth. We are part of a movement of individuals spanning generations that submits entirely to the authority of a single person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of our core values as a church is truth. If you were to go onto the website, And look at the About Us section, you would see core values. And one of those core values is truth. If you were to walk out these doors and look off on your right-hand side at those five pictures up on the wall, one of them says truth. And underneath is this. Truth finds its only source in everything God has said and done in the Bible, most of all in His Son, Jesus. He came full of grace and truth to make God known to us. You see, Paul's entire world was turned upside down by the person of Jesus. He references it briefly when he says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. For Paul, there was life before Jesus and there was life after Jesus. Much like our calendar is divided into B.C., before Christ, And A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, the epic event of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord, divided the, the calendar for all of history. And so in our individual lives, the person of Jesus is that decisive, life changing event. 
He is the dividing line between life outside of the good news and life inside of the good news. And Paul is not pushing his readers towards less authority in their lives. No, he's pushing them to embrace the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. When he calls them away from the slavery of legalism, he's not calling them to throw off every restraint. Rather, he's going to realign their compass to the true north of Jesus Christ and his authority. So as a church, to answer the question, where is our authority located, is rather simple. Our authority is located in none other than the person of Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to have the joy of baptizing three individuals. And that's going to be a time of celebration for us as a church family. And part of that baptism service will be asking each individual this question, what is your profession? What does that question mean? What is your creed? What is your belief? What is the authoritative statement by which you are going to orient and are orienting every facet of your life? And the answer those three individuals will give is this. Jesus is Lord. That is our creed. He is the master, the sovereign, the king. He holds all authority. So above all else, May we as a church family be a people who proclaim that Jesus Christ is resurrected and he's the reigning king. And he holds all authority and he's worthy of all worship and all adoration and all joyful obedience. Because he is. So there are many implications that flow from this one question, where is our authority located? It's located in the person of Jesus. So here are just two implications of that. First, with Jesus as our Lord, we have nothing to fear from hostile forces that deny the gospel. Absolutely nothing to fear. The world in which we're living is going to grow increasingly anti-Christian, anti-truth, hostile to the message we love, and that's okay. That's to be expected. That doesn't change the fact that Jesus Christ is resurrected and reigning today. This allows us to be quietly confident as we seek to love Jesus, cultivate community, and live on mission. The worst that individuals can do to us is not outside of the control and the authority of the Son of God who conquered death. It also means that we can welcome the outsider into our midst. We don't have to be fearful about individuals joining us on a Sunday morning who don't believe what we believe, but who maybe are exploring the claims of Christianity. We can call them to join us, invite them to be a part of what we are doing, and journey with them. We don't have to be fearful about their doubts, their skepticism, their questions. Jesus Christ is resurrected and reigning. It also means that we can deal honestly with our own insecurities and our own doubts. Because let's face it, every one of us 
has doubts at some point in our lives. That's part of the nature of faith. Faith is walking not by sight. And we as a community of believers together are going to commit that we will walk with one another in times of incredibly strong faith on each of our parts and in times when our faith is weak and our doubts are strong. And that's healthy. And we don't have to be fearful about that. And that's good news. That's part of the good news of the gospel. The second reality that flows from the fact that Jesus is our authority is really focused on those who've not yet submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord. And there are undoubtedly some here in this space today, right now. And if that's you, I'm hoping that there'll be more men and women like you in the days ahead in these seats. And so the implication from this particular point of the message is this. It's a question. Where is your authority located? You certainly have one, whether you realize it or not. But what are the basic underlining presuppositions about life around which you are orienting your life today? Any claim to truth is clinging to an authority. And if your authority is capable of error, then the entire structure built upon that foundation is unstable and unsafe. And so if you are here and you would not yet consider yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus, my invitation to you is very simple. Would you just continue to join us? Consider hanging around with us as we walk through the book of Colossians. Compare your authority for living to the beauty and the simplicity and the joy and the grandeur of making Jesus Christ your authority. Consider whether or not your authority can match the freedom and the beauty and the goodness of Jesus Christ. We welcome your questions and your doubts, and we would love to have you here in this safe place and this safe space to explore the truths of Christianity. And I hope if you're a follower of Jesus and you're hearing this, I hope what you're hearing is that your unsaved friends and coworkers and neighbors would be welcome here. That they are invited into a place where they don't have to subscribe to the truth claims of Christianity from day one in order to be here. They can come and sit and listen and evaluate And let's allow the Spirit of God to do what only the Spirit of God can do through the Word of God. But let's walk with our neighbors and our loved ones and our co-workers. So our first question, where is our authority? It's located in the person of Jesus Christ. Our second question, to bring out the second reality of just these first two verses, is this. With whom are we associated With whom are we associated? Paul says in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, Paul is using two descriptors, saints, and as the CSB puts it, faithful brothers and sisters. The word saints connects us back to the Old Testament. It's a frequent 
term used to describe the people of God. They are the holy ones or the saints. How about Psalm 16, chapter 3, or verse 3? As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. Psalm 34, 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Daniel 7, 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. So when Paul is writing to the Colossian believers, many of whom were Gentiles, and he addresses them as saints, what is he doing? He's reminding them that they have been brought out of something into a story that is not their own, something bigger that God is doing, creating a people for himself, called out ones, separated ones. Paul's theology is something we will continue to cherish cherish as a church. Regardless of ethnicity, regardless of background, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of intellect, regardless of of anything else, followers of Jesus have been grafted into the people of God. As one man says, Paul understood these Gentiles to have been incorporated into Israel, the people of God, through faith in and baptism in the name of Messiah Jesus. That is, without becoming Jewish proselytes. So what does that mean for us? That means we have been called into the story of what God has been doing since day one of creation. There is such good news in the descriptor, holy ones, or saints. This is the gospel summed up in one word. Fallen men and women, outside of the covenants of Israel, aliens to the promises of God to his people, have been brought into this reality by an epic event, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit. We are now in Christ, and because of that, we are part of God's holy people, not because we ourselves are holy in and of ourselves, but because God has set us apart through Jesus. He's put us into Christ, his son. And the good news of the gospel is this. Anybody can get in on this. It's not limited to ethnicity anymore. It is based solely upon the grace of God in Jesus. So Paul also describes his readers as faithful brothers and sisters. Paul is communicating that the associations of these diverse men and women brought together from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnicities, different religions, different philosophies of life and politics and educational levels and intellect and physical weaknesses, while those differences remain, they fade into the background. Why? Because we've been brought into the stunning reality of adoption into the family of God. A cataclysmic event has happened to bring us all together. God has come in the person of Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. And in God's lavish grace, he lived the life we could not live, died the death that we deserve to die, was resurrected from the grave and invites us into that resurrection life through the Spirit, no matter who we are or where we've come from or what we've done. 
or what has been done to us. God loves his diverse family. And we reflect the heart of God when we love the brothers and sisters gathered around us in the local church. And so, at least on a weekly basis, the family, the church, gets together to swap stories, to tell the story. That's part of the fun of family reunions, right? When you get together as a family and you start telling stories. Maybe you have that crazy uncle or that grandmother or that family member that you can always count on when you get together as a family, stories are going to start to flow. You're going to start hearing about so-and-so who did such-and-such at such-and-such a time way back when. We tell stories, stories that have shaped our family history. Elizabeth's grandfather fought in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. And he was wounded by shrapnel very early on in that battle. He carried pieces of that shrapnel in his back up until his dying day. Before he passed away, I can remember sitting with him in a little room off of the farmhouse he built himself in the mountains of Trade, Tennessee. And I can remember distinctly him telling us stories about his time in the military. One of the best ones... Uh, involved him meeting up with one of his brothers in France while they were both in the military, assigned to different units, and that meeting was arranged by a piece of paper baked into a loaf of bread that was sent from the one brother to the other brother. And so they left their units somehow and met up in France during World War II and then went back and continued their fighting. But the most unique part about my grandfather's story is the fact that that wound received at the Battle of the Bulge probably saved his life because it happened early on in the battle. And Elizabeth's grandfather was sent home after he recovered. So he went to the mountains of Trade, Tennessee, married Geraldine, had Elizabeth's dad, dad met Diane, Diane and Lynn Wallace had Elizabeth and her brothers. Family stories shape us. Family history matters. This is what we are doing every week when we gather here. We are telling a story. The family story. This is why the liturgy matters. This story is not stuck in the past. It's part of what God is doing in the present. It's a story that is ongoing, that is being written right now. It's the story of the gospel of the grace of God in the person of Jesus who died 2,000 years ago and yet right now is saving people and changing us from the inside out. And that is what we celebrate week after week after week after week. So we gather and we engage in the liturgy. We remind ourselves again that God in his love is inviting us to worship him. And we are corporately confess again that we are sinners and undeserving of his grace. And we are reminded again that God assures us of pardon 
by his gracious love in the person of Jesus. And we profess our faith again that Jesus Christ is king and he's coming again. And we do this every single week. And then we answer our Lord's invitation to commune with him through the elements as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we celebrate the grace of the once-for-all sacrifice of our Lord, while Jesus himself, through the person of the Spirit, delights to join us and celebrate with us. He is honored by this storytelling. This is why the gathering matters. Stories shape us. And the narratives of our world and our culture are shaping us every day. The stories you've been reading on social media are shaping you. The stories you read in the news are shaping you. The stories that you, the narratives that are being told to us outside of the gathering of the church are shaping us. So we come together, we realign every week to true north, the story that fundamentally has changed everything for all time. And at the same time, we remind ourselves that even in this city, we are not alone in this story. There are hundreds, perhaps thousands of followers of Jesus Christ right here in the city of Chattanooga. And God is writing his story in them and through them through the gospel. And there are multiplied tens and hundreds of thousands of brothers and sisters in countries we can hardly pronounce with experiences that we cannot even comprehend that are also called into this story. And I say there are experiences we can't really comprehend, but that's not even entirely accurate, is it? Because of our place in this story, we all have one experience in common. And that experience is we've been forever changed by the radical grace of Jesus. So as a church, this is our association, the faithful brothers and sisters of our Lord. These are the people that we will stand together in this room, in this city, in this nation, and across the world that we will plant our flag with and say, they are our brothers, they are our sisters, and we are part of something and part of a family so much bigger than we could possibly imagine. These dear brothers and sisters, forever these, will be our associations the saints and the faithful brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus, the sons and daughters of our Father. So we've asked the question, who or what is our authority in life? And the answer is Jesus Christ. We've asked who is or what is our association? Who, who are our associations in life? And the answer is the community of the saints, the faithful brothers and sisters. So let's ask the third question. What will be our aim in life? What will be our aim? Well, Paul ends his greeting with a simple prayer. He says, grace to you, verse 2, and peace from God our Father. Now notice first that the prayer requests are rooted in a reality concerning God. What is that reality? God is our Father. J.I. Packer said, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. 
the title Father is without doubt the most important word for our understanding of who God is. Paul is praying, or rather Paul's prayer is linked to the fact that God is our Father. And what does that mean? That means he's predisposed to pour goodness out upon his children. That is his heart as Father. And what is the goodness Paul is asking God the Father to pour out upon the Colossian believers? Grace and peace. What is grace? Grace is, quite simply, favor. I love one man's definition. He, he words it this way. Grace is the dynamic, outreaching, generosity of God. The dynamic, outreaching, generosity of God. That's what grace is. But he also prays for peace. This is connected to the Hebrew word for shalom. It's a word that means that there's an absence of war, but far beyond that, all that makes for well-being and prosperity in the absence of war. Not simply just individual inner peace, but the social wholeness of harmonious relationships. And that's how another gentleman describes what this peace is. So what is Paul describing? This grace and peace. He is praying that God would develop a gospel culture within the Colossian church. Paul's prayer is that God's grace would continue to keep God's people and that God's people would be marked by peace. But that grace and peace is not a commodity to be hoarded. It's not a fractional cryptocurrency to hang on to that you hope one day becomes worth hundreds of dollars. No, it is something to be poured out upon others. This outreaching generosity of God, this outreaching love, this grace, and that peace or that well-being that the Spirit brings to us by the gospel, this is to be shed, poured out from us to others on a regular basis. Our aim is this, to be a gathering of grace and a people of peace. To make the aroma of Christ in this little corner of Tennessee attractive and beautiful by our lives, by our relationships, so that the watching world can wonder in confusion what they're missing, why their inner life is so empty, why their relationships are so shallow and so fractured and so transactional. This requires, for us, embodied living and faithful presence. It means that we need to be in proximity to one another. That's, again, part of the gathering for a week-by-week basis, but it has to go beyond simply a once-a-week gathering to where there is time being spent, brothers to brothers, sisters to sisters, brothers and sisters to brothers and sisters, as we gather together to pour grace and peace upon one another. This is a gospel culture. We exist as a church to love Jesus, cultivate community, and live on mission. And so our aim as a church family is to cultivate the sort of gospel culture marked by grace 
and by peace. So a couple of implications stand out for me concerning our life together as members of Sojourn Community Church. And the first is this. It's a question. How are you leaning into the grace and peace that God has offered you in Christ? Do you consider that grace and peace to be a doorway that you walked through to enter the Christian life and something you left behind in order to dive into something deeper? Or is the grace and peace of God something you are daily bathing in? Because apart from God's grace and apart from peace with Him through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have nothing. What practices and disciplines need to be strengthened so that you are daily reminding yourself of the grace that is yours in the person of Jesus and the peace that he brings through the person of the Spirit? As we go through the book of Colossians, we're going to come to plenty of imperatives, plenty of commands, plenty of expectation. But doing flows out of being. And there may be some here that before you seek to make great strides in activity, you simply need to sit in the grace and the peace of God and come to understand what it means that you are a beloved child of the King. There's a second implication, though, and it's quite practical. If you consider Sojourn to be your home church, could I encourage you at the start of this new year to consider attaching yourself to community outside of the Sunday morning gathering. What I mean by that is connect with a group of people within Sojourn on a regular basis outside of the Sunday morning gathering. We have a model for doing that here called Life Groups, and we'd love for you to be a part of that at the start of this new year. This is what God has called us into, not simply into an eternal life sometime in the future, but into a community life in the here and now. He's brought us into the body, the church. Since it's true that we've been called into a greater association by the gospel, and since it's true that we've experienced grace and peace and abundance from God our Father, then we have the distinct honor and joy of cultivating that gospel-shaped culture among ourselves as brothers and sisters. Third implication. As we engage with one another, what's going to shape our interactions? Will it be the surface-level realities that seem to unite us? Will it be similar interests in sports or politics or hobbies? Or will it be the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will that be the foundation of our interactions? See, the reality is some of us walked into this room this morning and this was the last place we wanted to be. 
is this a place that it's safe for us to communicate that to one another? I've just had a really, really rough week. I had to drag myself out of bed to get through these doors. I'm not, this is hypothetical. I was excited to come to m- this morning. But there'll be plenty of Sundays, I promise, because I'm human. So on those Sundays, when you come up and ask me, hey, how you doing? Is it going to be okay if I say to you, you know what, it's been a really rough week. Is there freedom because of the grace of God and the peace of God for us to live that open and vulnerable with one another? And when someone communicates to us it's been a really hard week, will our initial reaction to that be, let me give you all this good advice that's worked for me? Or will it be bringing them back to the gospel? The fact that no matter what is going on, this is the good news of the gospel. Forgiveness and freedom from sin. Freedom from guilt and shame. Honor and peace and joy in suffering. The steadfast love of the Father. The hope of eternity. The presence of the Spirit right now eternal realities that are no less true today as they will be in a million years. This is the good news of the gospel. And it's true whether it's been a terrible week or an awesome week. So we can gather together and be honest. It's been a great week. It's been an awful week. But the gospel is still true. This is the good news of the gospel. So we rest in it and we be at peace. So as 2022 opens and as we begin our journey together as a church family, can we just plant our flag right here with Jesus as our authority, with the community of Jesus as our association, the the brothers and sisters that follow our Lord, And with grace and peace as our aim, we will continue to pursue this gospel centrality until Christ returns, and may he find us faithful. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we are so grateful for your word. We thank you that it is life we would simply ask you that you would graft these truths into our hearts, that they would bring forth within us the fruit of a righteous life, a life of faith that acknowledges the benevolent authority of Jesus, a life of faith that believes the the richest life is one lived in community with brothers and sisters in Christ a life of faith that leans into the grace and peace that you have lavished upon us in Jesus. And Father, we pray these things in the name of you and your Son and the Holy Spirit, our triune God. Amen.